Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. And as usual, it's a Tuesday episode. So with us is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Um, here's what's not as usual. Um, I, I'm ready to talk about some new stuff. When Hugo and I were talking about what we wanted to record for this episode, uh, my first text back to him was, I don't know what I do want to talk about, but I don't want to talk about Elon Musk, Twitter, Sam Bankman-Fried, crypto regulation, FTX, Section 230, um, the same kind of stuff I feel like we just talked about all of 2022, in large part because these were important things in our sector that were happening. Um, but you know, Hugo's thesis is the more engaged I am in whatever topic we're discussing, uh, the better of a podcast it is. And so based on that, um, we are going to deviate a little bit sometimes and um, spend a little less time on that strict intersection of uh, technology and and regulation, uh, and kind of let our minds wander. So, Hugo, how you doing, man? Happy New Year. Good. I, Bradley, I have a question about that first right off the bat, which is yeah. it seems um, it, most of those subjects you mentioned, not so much Section 230, which I don't think is widely talked about in the world, uh, probably as much but as it We is. talk about it incessantly. <laughs> we do. We do. But, uh, but, the, but the other ones, Sam Bankman-Fried, Twitter, Elon Musk, um, the whole crypto thing, um, it felt like like part of the reason we don't want to talk about it anymore is not just because we talked about it too much, but because it was just it was just this overwhelming. Yeah, it's boring. But this it, it became boring. But do you think that the tendency of the media and and because of social media that these sort of like subjects become almost like monolithic more? Oh, more oh for, for sure. So somebody was telling me that they were at a party with the head of tech coverage for the Washington Post, and this person said. Oh, this Twitter story is the most important story of any story in years. And I was like, no, no, it's not. It's important to reporters because it's very much impacts their personal lives and how they interact with each other and how they get credit and attention from other people and validation. And so for them, the fate of Twitter is incredibly important. For the world overall, um, the only thing that could be useful is if Twitter went away completely and otherwise, you know, whether it's 10 percent more or less toxic is, you know, meaningful, but it's certainly not the most important story of this generation. Yeah, well, that's for sure. So I, I want to ask you one. Um, uh, it's not a big question, but it just a, a stage setting question. Just so this is the, our first podcast, of the new year, obviously, and it is the new year, 2023, although not on the day we're recording this, but on the day people are listening to it. So. Um, are New Year's meaningful to you as a time to reflect on things or make changes or, you know, make no, solutions? Uh, for, for me, it's not for, for two reasons. One is, you know, I'm pretty introspective to begin with. And I my mind constantly goes to whatever is not working in my life and how do I try to fix it? And so if anything, I have the other problem, right, which is I am too focused on, um, you know, kind of my inner life and my uh, problems and, and how to deal with them. The other thing is, um, for me, as someone who's Jewish, Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah really serve that purpose as well, in part because you know, you're sitting in synagogue for, call it over a course of a eight, nine day period for like, I don't know, 11 hours, 12 hours, whatever it is, you, you, know, you, you need to do something, right? And so you end up, to me at least, doing a really deep dive into every facet of your life and what's good and what's working, what isn't. And so I think between sort of my daily ha tendency to do it and between the Jewish holidays, it's already done f by the time we get to this time of the year. W what about you? Um, 
And no, not at all. I, 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 I don't, I don't have either one. Actually, I don't, I don't go to, to, I don't observe the Jewish holidays, and and I don't, I kind of hate the resolution making impulse personally. Um, and and I agree with you that it's sort of something that I, I probably do too much of in my normal life. So um, doesn't seem like I. Need- with that said, is there one thing that you would like to be able to do better or more consistently, or not do in twenty twenty three? Um. Gee, more consistently. I mean, in a sense, everything. But the, um, I think it's, I think it's actually related to what we were just talking about, which is find ways to get off the path that everybody else is on all the time. You know, like I feel like we're we're just constantly pushed into like this, this, you know, the topics we talk about or the things we 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 talk about with our friends and and our family and stuff. It just it feels like there's like this. Like as, as, as many, as, as diverse as the world is and, and as many ways that we can access it through the internet and all that, um, it feels like, it feels like things almost are getting shallower and more, uh, you know, less, less variety, less, um, you know, it's, it's easy just to fall into the patterns that everybody it's, it's else. Funny, right. So there's, there's all this group think and yet at the same time, because of the internet, there are more subcultures that are alive and flourishing than any time in history. Um, and so the reality may be, it's not that everyone is talking about the same thing, it's that we live, you know, there's been a lot of research done on this. We sort of live in these tribal communities um, and, and everything becomes sort of a reflection of our own bubble and our own ecosystem. And so the tribal community that we live in and the subculture that we live in, it feels like everybody's talking about Elon Musk and Twitter or Sam Bankman fried and crypto. And I think that's not actually true. It's just true among us. Yeah, uh, I, th- it's, I think that's exactly right. So let's talk about one subject that, that is a bit of a big story right now, but we have not talked about it and it, it will probably go away somewhat quickly. Um, but this is the case of George Santos. who yeah. um, I, I'm going to just do a quick update on people for those who haven't been following the story. So George Santos was elected to Congress in the third district, which is part of Long Island and part of Queens. Um, and then just a couple of weeks after the election, the New York Times did this like incredible investigation of him, which revealed that virtually everything about his like life story is untrue. Um, so everything. Like his religion, sexuality, where he lived, where he worked, where he went to school. Like they didn't seem to be a single fact that that made any sense. It held up, I know. So and um, I, I we, we, so we haven't talked about it at all. And the, the first question I have for you, I just want to. I, I, I like to do this as much as possible. Is 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 bring things more into your personal experience in terms of you know your working on on campaigns. Have you ever been involved in a case? Obviously, you didn't work for a candidate like George Santos, but have you ever seen someone just tell insane lies like this that like that at least worked for some amount of time? Does anything spring to mind? I, I know Blagojevich probably did some of it, but nothing like this. Yeah, not 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 at this at this level. I mean, this is obviously even for even if politicians are generally somewhat um, psychopathic or sociopathic because of their desperation and need for dopamine hits above all else, that this guy is on an entirely different level. Um, no, I mean, I think in ter- look, Trump would be the example of someone who just lies constantly, and and in many ways. When we look at the world now as a manifestation of the impact of, you know, four to eight years of Donald Trump, eight meaning just that he's been in our lives um, so regularly, you know, some of it becomes things like Elon Musk the other day, in my mind, jumped, God, I'm talking about him now, uh, jumping the shark uh, by calling stories that he didn't like fake news, right? And us just sort of dismissing other people's views completely to 
the ability to be incredibly personally brutal in every single interaction and somehow that's now okay um, to the notion to actually challenge the very tenets of democracy like free and fair elections, you know, to just making shit up about yourself, right? Donald Trump in reality, had he taken the money his dad gave him and put it in a mutual fund, would be much, much wealthier than he is today, right? And his whole image was constructed around him being this brilliant businessman when in reality, He's a brilliant promoter and showman, but but he's a pretty terrible business person. So, um, you know, he has to embellish his resume because that's what it. he needed people all over the country to say, yeah, he's a New York billionaire developer, but he's like me. Right. But he has to be successful to complete the circle there. Um, and Santos even more so. So, I mean, the two questions I have about it is one. What the fuck was the other campaign doing? Like I saw Bob Zimmerman who who lost to Santos having a rally yesterday. Do you know Bob Zimmerman at all? Is he someone you devoted yeah, interested? I've met him over the years. I did not donate to his campaign. So uh, did he ask you? Oh yeah, he called like ten times. Um, but it's not there. It's just it's just because there's like lists of donors, and so they just keep calling them over and over again. And uh, and what what were your impression of him? Uh, what was your impression of him before any of this happened? I mean, just a guy who is in, in around the kind of political sphere, comms guy, fundraising guy, nothing particularly impressive or unimpressive, basically very almost no impression, just as sort of a glad-hander type. Right. And yeah. and he, I mean, what was interesting, right, so he's not an amateur at all. So the no. idea that, like, he just had, didn't know what he was doing is... And it's remarkable that, look, I mean, opposition research is a fundamental cornerstone of every single campaign, whether it's a electoral campaign, a legislative campaign, a ballot referendum, just sort of an overall policy influence campaign, whatever it might be. And look, I understand that that your team might miss one or two things, but they literally missed everything, right? Uh, remarkable to the point where it is maybe one of the worst cases of political malfeasance and, and negligence that I think I've ever seen. And though Zimmerman should not be in public asking for a recount, he should be hanging his head in shame and locked in a basement somewhere. Um, it so, is amazing, right? So they, they, there was there was one. I guess he spoke to uh, the story I read was in Puck, and and he was talking about how they didn't have the thirty or fifty thousand dollars to do to do a real sort of deep dive into Santos' background. You're like, what about having somebody call like? anybody on his resume like like you could literally in an afternoon just have yeah. an intern be like so uh did, where do you go to college did, where did he like what are the public records for this like it, it wouldn't the way, they, they did not have 30 to 50 grand they just misspent the 30 to 50 grand that could have gone to this right they on television is that yeah, what they the private ads or tv ads or direct mail or put a little more to field quite frankly stuff that does two things one um you know, there's people clamoring for that spend. Your consultants in each different part of the campaign are demanding more money or otherwise what they're doing can't possibly work. And number two, that other stuff all achieves your underlying goal of running for office in the first place, which is it gives you an ego boost, right? When you see yourself on TV looking good, on digital ads looking good, and direct mail looking good, and, you know, palm cards and, and grassroots materials looking good – you know, that's why you're running for office in the first place. So you want to put money towards that. The truth is, had he just put 50 grand to oppo instead of all of that other stuff, um, they could have found this all very easily. You're right. An intern just could have also just put the bother to check, found it easily. So, you know, uh, while I don't think George Santos belongs in Congress, I don't think anyone else involved in the campaign on either side does either. Let's um, let's move on to something else. Um, 
I, now, a, a, an issue that did come up, you sent me a couple of uh, a couple of notes about it on your political text group that I was interested in was you guys got in a debate about um, the amount that's spent on Homeland Security and whether like it's still something that deserves that level of spending. What, what you had an interesting theory about this. I, I want you to. to tell yeah. That. So, look, I was um, going through Newark Airport on the 24th. And it's funny because uh, I actually in one of the people I, I sent this comment to they're like oh let me guess you just waited in a long line i'm like no actually between pre-check and clear i soared right through right that was jamie rubin by the way who said that right i yes. mean not, we're not that we're going to out people on the text group or anything like that You'd but just ashamed like, of yourself very jamie right it's like a kind of way he would say it he, he deserves a sort of public innovation um <laughs> so um but what what occurred to me was just okay so i didn't you know this particular time i kind of managed to move through pretty fast but overall you know, there's this massive, massive infrastructure um, at every single airport that costs tens of billions of dollars, you know, a year probably in, in total um, to probably prevent, I don't know, let's say you had none of this. We didn't really have this much before um, 9-11, one or two or three potential terrorist attacks. And I don't want to minimize how damaging it is, but, you know, our friends over at Marginal Revolution did a study and they found that um, the TSA spent as much as $667 million per life saved, right? So, and that doesn't even take account the productivity loss of everyone having to get to the airport much earlier than they used to, right? So so businesses suffer overall because people are leaving work earlier to get to the airport. Um, and then the people are having a hard time being more productive when they're at the airport because you're dealing with too many other different things. And so the collective cost of society is not just the entire TSA infrastructure. It, it's also the collective weighting um, added on top of it because we have these security procedures. So I think it's reasonable to at least ask the question that if we're, if we're talking about, you know, if, if you, if you take the, the marginal revolution number and you add in the productivity for spending effectively a billion dollars per life save, is that a good use of money, right? Because we know from actuarial tables and we know from, you know, jury, uh, you know, damages awarded by juries, th- there is an economic formula to apply to the value of human life. And in this case, it doesn't walk, come anywhere near what, what the formula in other industries has, right? So I, I'm not saying that we should all of a sudden get rid of the TSA. Uh, and I also, you know, Howard and our group said, uh, made a good point, which is even if it doesn't keep um, terrorists, that many terrorists out, or doesn't, you know, it just doesn't save that many terrorist incidents, you would have mass shootings at airports and airplanes if there wasn't some sort of security check. So I, I, I agree with that, but I'm not sure that it requires the entire process we have right now just to uh, just to eliminate mass shootings. So I think one is, you know, look, we, we changed our world after 9-11. It made complete sense to, to do so. You know, um, I was kind of in the middle of all of it at Ground Zero because I was working for, for Chuck Schumer at the time. And so I think I, you know, saw it and felt it firsthand quite a bit. And so I, I get it. But at, at the same time, you can't just commit to something and then never reevaluate it, never ask a hard question. Is, is this thing actually working? Is it achieving its intended purpose? Is it doing more good than harm? And I think that it's time to at least have that conversation and maybe nothing changes at all. Um, but it, I'd feel better about a government that actually was thoughtful and introspective about how it spends money and whether or not a particular program is working than just throwing money at a problem and asking, telling everyone to deal with it simply because, you know, you're worried about, um, you know, looking bad if you suggest otherwise. 
Well, I think the answer, right, is it comes down to, to technology, right? Ultimately, no politician is going to stick their head out and say, hey, guess what? Maybe we don't need all these like, you know, uh, all these precautions and all these systems um, because the, you know, the what's what lies on the other side, the risk, the threat is just so massive and incalculable that like it just scares the shit out of people, you know? Um, yeah, here's, you, you can't be the politician who got rid of the metal detectors and then uh, there was terrorist act that it's on your, your hands, right? Yeah. So, but you're right. What if new technology is invented that is less invasive, that moves a lot faster, that maybe requires less of a TSA presence at airports? And look, maybe it doesn't actually make us safer. Maybe it just makes us as safe with a lot less cost and in infrastructure. Um, yeah. But again, if, if you're not at least asking these kinds of questions, then you're never going to solve the problem or improve anything. Um, let's move on to a book that you read over uh, break. Um, it's a book called Stumbling on Happiness, written by a Harvard professor named Daniel Todd Gilbert. Uh, before you describe what the book is about, I want to ask you, or maybe in describing what the book is about, why did you read this? Like, What, what about this type of book? Oh, um, two things. One is, you know, I'm generally interested in, in happiness science. We talk about it. Dan Gilbert is considered really one of the absolute preeminent experts in, in that space. Um, his TED Talks are like having incredible numbers of views. and his books you, Have you watched his TED Talks? I have. And it's hard for me to do because I don't have the patience to sit and really watch anything um, <laughs> other than that. So um, you but, watch movies. Yeah, but even then I get bored and I go to fewer movies than I used to. Um so um, I read it because I'm interested in the topic overall. I'm also generally really interested in behavioral science. Um, mm -hmm. When I was in, I didn't realize at the time, but when I was in law school, was a moment where I think some of the different professors at Chicago happened to be really experimenting with and studying and writing about uh, social norm theory. Uh, okay. Cass Sunstein, who I ended up doing you know multiple independent studies with and took five classes with and all the stuff. Um, and so I've kind of been interested in this stuff for a very long time. And, and the point of Gilbert's book is, isn't even so much like, you know, if you meditate and walk in the forest and show gratitude and, and have kale every day, you'll be happy. It's not life hacks. It's really a question of when we make decisions, do we understand uh, why we're making the decision that we're making? Are we able to properly think through future outcomes, right? And his main point is that human beings are terrible predictors of what something will be in the future. So we make decisions, but but generally with the wrong information or for the wrong reasons. And his argument is the best way to get something right is to talk to someone who just went through that specific thing, right? Because they will have seen all the unintended consequences, both good or bad, and they can walk you through it. But there's a human tendency to, to not want to do that, to instead just see something and either idealize it and say, this would be amazing. And all you're thinking of is sort of the one image of the best possible that could ever get, or um, this would be terrible, right? So for example, lottery ticket winners um, and studies show that are rarely as happy long-term that they think that they would be because, you know, one, they end up losing a lot of the money to, to grift and entourage and whatever else. But, but two, you know, it, Certainly brings a certain amount of happiness, but as we've discussed before on this podcast, the Donna treadmill always wins. And after a while, even if you won a hundred million dollars, whatever it is, you know the the dopamine hit you get, the joy you get out of buying uh, another product just becomes less and less. Whereas paraplegics um, are not actually as miserable as they expect it to be. I mean, it's still horrible to be a paraplegic, and obviously, you know, very empathetic 
towards people in that situation. But, you know, the study, if you ask people before it happened, how unhappy would you be? And then when they studied it afterwards, um, it turned out that it was actually people just sort of get, they got used to it, right? I'm not, I'm not minimizing it. But the point being, um, we're bad predictors at, at our own future behavior. Like, uh, I'll give you an example. I was watching, I forget what it was, some TV show the other day, and two prosecuting attorneys, you know, were part of a police raid and they strode in and I was like, oh, that looks so cool. I wish I did that. Now, look, if you're a government prosecutor, you're spending 98% of your time, 99 doing paperwork, right? You're not go- going in on big drug busts and like, you know, wearing a leather trench coat and, and holding a gun. Um, but we just take this one moment of good or bad and we idealize it or demonize it in our heads and then apply that to how we feel about something which then governs the actions that we take. So the point of this book, and this is a very long answer to your question, is uh, if you can better um, find ways to accurately assess the choices you make and what you might be going through in the future, you're going to make better choices and that will make you happier. I guess the the big problem there, right, is that who wants to really think seriously about their future? Like you like to think of your future in terms of winning the lottery or buying a vacation house or something that's like fantastic. But thinking about your future like, oh, when I'm older and I might be sick or when I can't get around that well or when I can't work or, you know, like these things that are inevitable. And yet, like, who wants to spend their time thinking about this? Yeah. I remember those commercials that that uh, Gilbert did for Prudential, you know, and it's about how everybody doesn't put a, you know, doesn't has unrealistic ideas of how much money they'll need in retirement. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, of course. I mean, who wants to actually think about like, oh, I better live on a, you know, in a house without staircases because I might not be able to get up the stairs. Like, yeah, look, I, I do know some people that live like that, and that that's a terrible way to live as well. You do know people who are constantly planning like that, or just you know, as for growing old, Sandra's <laughs> and just always always focused on the, the next terrible thing that could happen to them, and they right. tend to be people with very little agency, right? Um, who actually don't think that they can control their environment um, and everything in life is just what happens to them, good or bad, and they're just along for the ride or they're the victim. Right. So, um, yeah, I agree. You, you don't want to, no one wants to think like that. And I don't think you actually would want to live like that. Um, but you know, but there's definitely a happy medium, right? So instead of going to law school based on that one image of these two cool prosecutors who are TV actors, um, going in on a bus of some kind, you know, you can read books about or talk to people who are actual federal prosecutors and what's your job really like, right? You can intern, um, in an office. Look, my first summer after law school, I did, uh, I interned at the Justice Department. They had an office called the Office of Special Investigations. They hunted Nazi war criminals who are still alive and hiding in the U.S. And I thought, like, what could be fucking cooler than that, right? And my thought was, I'm going to get there. They're going to give me a badge and a gun and a leather trench coat. And they're going to put me on a plane to Ohio. And I'm going to go find some Nazis, right? And what was it? I did legal research. I wrote memos. But, you know, instead of it being about you know, someone suing someone else because, you know, it didn't have 18, you know, uh, packets of, of detergent and they only had 16. Um, it was just about, you know, people who were Nazi war criminals 50 years ago or however long it was. So um, even what should have been in some ways the most exciting job in the law ultimately was what every job mainly is, which is, you know, a lot of it is not that exciting. It's just pushing things along. And because I had that experience, I knew for sure 
that any career in the legal profession was not for me. I, I went to what I thought would be the most possibly exciting thing. It was boring. That kind of confirmed what I already thought uh, and suspected. Um, and I acted on that, right? And look, on one hand, you know, it's not hard to sort of act uh, in a way that takes you away something that you don't like and is boring. On the other hand, I had a ton of law school debt, right? And I had to be able to sort of have that information to make the decision that, yeah, I will carry this debt for a long time. I will have to live with a lot less money, um, but I will ultimately be better off and happier for doing so. So, you know, in, in most of my life, like everyone else, I just plunge ahead with bad decisions. Um, but, you know, at least one example <laughs> I think of where I did do that, it worked out pretty well. So um, there was one line you sent me a couple of different uh, a couple of different lines from Gilbert's book, and one of them uh, struck me. We think that Californians are happier than Ohioans, Ohioans, because we imagine California with so few details, and we make no allowance for the fact that the details we are failing to imagine could drastically alter the conclusions we draw. So, do you think people who live in California are happier than Ohio? Is that a standard like basis point? No, I mean it's it's funny. I, if you ask me, would I be happy living in California? I would say yes. Right. If you ask me, would I be happy living in Ohio? I would say no. But, <laughs> but look, the reality: there might be specific things by different places that appeal to you, right? Some people love big cities. Some people love suburban areas. Some people love rural areas. So, you know, you might have a place that just intrinsically appeals to you more and there might be specific things. California has really great weather, right? Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, people are people. And what do you have? You have your your family, you have your friends, you have your job, you have some interests. Um, and that exists whether you live in, in Malibu or Dayton, right? So that's, that's not all that different. Um, but what we do is we take the one image that comes to mind. So California is like, oh, this beautiful weather, Hollywood, it's going to be so fun. And uh, so as a result, you say California, but that's not necessarily true. Yeah. No, I am I like Ohio. I like the Rust Belt. I like all those places. Yeah, well, you're into that whole Western New York kind of <laughs> Great Lakes thing. Um, but I've lived in the Midwest for seven years, and I will say I definitely don't ever want to do it again. But But for two reasons that... Um, again, this was me gaining specific knowledge over time by experiencing it, not just the stereotype beforehand. One was obvious, which is the fucking weather. And the, and the problem with the weather in Chicago isn't just that it's cold. It's endless, right? The, the winter starts in October. It goes all the way through like May. I remember one time uh, Bob and I were in Chinatown in Chicago and it was May 31st and like I don't know, 10 or 11 o'clock at night. So June was an hour or two away. And I looked up and there was a sprinkling of snow coming down. I was like, you got to be fucking kidding me. Uh, the other thing was, you know, it's a more conservative place from not so much sort of capital C conservative, like they're anti-immigrant and pro-guns and pro-life, but just more cautious in the way they approach life in general. And so for me, and I always kept running into this problem when I was in, in government, Illinois, the reason to do something is because it hasn't been done before. No one could figure it out or you could do it a lot better. You know, that's especially in government, right, where the, the impact and the scale is so massive. And in Illinois all the time, I would say, let's be the first state to have universal health care for all kids or tear down every single toll booth or, you know, whatever, import prescription drugs from Europe, from, you know, Europe and Canada. And I always get the same question, like, who else has already done this? And I'd be like, nobody. That's the whole point. That's why it's so exciting. And they're like, we want to be number 11. Right. They didn't want to be number 48. They didn't want to be Alabama. They want to be Mississippi, but they didn't want to be New York or California either. Right. And there is definitely a mentality of that in Chicago that I think is probably pervasive across the Midwest. 
that, you know, you have to deal with. On the flip side, what you don't have, and you do have in New York and L.A., are everyone being self-proclaimed geniuses um, and fighting incessantly and constantly to sort of gain their little piece of turf. Um, and that's exhausting, too. In fact, if, if we talk about California, my friends who live in L.A. and don't work in the entertainment, they really like it. You know, I mean, they have to deal with traffic. They have to deal with, you know, all the natural disasters that occur in Southern California, but they overall really like it. My friends who work in the entertainment business in Hollywood tend to hate it because then all of a sudden they're just consumed with this, this turf war uh, of trying to gain, you know, tiny little amounts of influence and power at all times. So, you know, I think you have to at least know yourself um, a little bit. Like I remember when I was in Chicago, the first time I was in law school, just asking myself, like, why do I feel tired and sluggish, you know? And I finally realized, it took me a while, that in New York, there's a sort of latent energy that pulsates through the streets, right? And, like, some people love it and feed off of it, and some people don't, but I very much do, to the point where when I was living in an environment that didn't have it, even though it looks like it should have it, because Chicago is certainly a big city with every single thing you would want that you can check off on a box, um, but it just doesn't have that energy, right? And and I feed off of that energy, and it was making me feel almost a little sluggish by not having access to it. But again, to relate this back to Dan Gilbert, what he would say is, you know, to the extent that you can't go experience multiple uh, places to live in their culture and their climate and everything else firsthand, talk to people who really live there, right? So, like, you know, you go on vacation somewhere, and you're like, oh, I wish I lived here. This would be so awesome. And then the reality is, you know, once you live somewhere – you got to deal with the dry cleaning, right? And you got to get groceries and the dishwasher breaks and, you know, life becomes life and it's, it's not a vacation, right? So um, all along the way of saying in a world where it's not hard to actually get people to tell you what they think about things because everyone likes to say what they think and the, the worst of them all have podcasts like this one. Um, <laughs> the more that you can try to find people in analogous situations who have already experienced whatever it is you're about to go through, good or bad, um, the better information you're going to have, better decisions you're going to make, and therefore the better the outcome. Um, okay, we're going to end with a kind of a, de- a pretty, pretty deep question, um, as if we've not been discussing deep questions up to now. But um, uh, Bradley, I sent you a, uh, a piece. It was sort of an excerpt from a book um, that the musician Nick Cave did. Uh, it, it's, uh, the book is actually a series of conversations with a journalist friend of his. Um, and the book is about grief. Um, Nick Cave lost two of his uh, children. Um, uh, one was an adult and one was still a child. Um, and the book is about how he sort of, in part about how traditional religion has helped him with grieving, even though he doesn't sort of necessarily believe in in a kind of uh, omniscient or all-powerful God. Um, and it's a pretty interesting point of view that, that uh, I wanted to ask you about, but I'm going to read just one fragment of a sentence. He said, the existence of God is in some way irrelevant, a detail, a technicality to the benefits of a devotional life. So I wanted to get your, I felt like, I, mean, I think one of the reasons I sent this. Yeah, this no, I, you. I loved it. I thought it was a great article. And my suspicion is I'll buy the book and then I'll read like two chapters and then I'll be like, I didn't need this much of it, um, <laughs> right. which is what happens to me all the time. But yeah, I mean, look, it, it's a fascinating concept, right? Which is there's the purpose that religion serves. Um, and then there's the underlying belief as, as to what it and what God is in the first place, right? It's kind of like my trainer, Rohan, we were, he's a big sci-fi guy and we were working out the other day and 
there was some TV, oh, the peripheral on Amazon we had both watched. And he was saying, you know, what if we're just living in a simulation? And I said, well, so what, right? We don't know the difference. We feel pain, uh, physical, emotional, everything else. So it's real to us. Uh, and therefore, um, it doesn't really matter uh, whether or not this is a simulation. And I think Nick, Nick Cave's point was sort of similar, which is there's the value you can get in a belief in a higher power it doesn't necessarily require the higher power to do anything or necessarily even to exist in order for that belief to have benefits, right? Um, I, I believe strongly in God. I have no proof that God exists. I just am pretty confident that that it does. Uh, but I also can point to periods in my life, especially in my childhood, where you know that belief and that personal relationship for me was helpful in getting through rough times, right? Um, and I think that in the case point is religion provides hope and guidance and community and structure for people. And those can all be incredibly helpful things, right? Life is inherently confusing and complicated and hard. We don't know the purpose of it. We don't really know what happened before we got here. We don't know what happens after we got here. Human beings are enormously complex being, you know, machines with the capacity to do incredible good and the capacity to do incredible bad. And, and we're not just naturally drawn towards either one, we're sort of constantly conflicted in the middle, right? And that's what makes being a human both so interesting and great in some ways and, and so difficult and terrible in others. And so I think Nick Cave's point is the ability to sort of believe in something that's greater than the fleeting life that we live can add real emotional value. And he lost two of his kids, like you said, and he was better able to ultimately deal with those losses by embracing uh a kind of faith. Um, and that kind of faith doesn't really matter whether God exists, doesn't exist. It's just a black hole. It was a, some, some gas, whatever. Um, but, but it could be anything. Yeah. Um, all right, Bradley, uh, here's to an Elon free 2023. Oh yeah. One, one last thing I was wondering about, just want to put this notion into the, uh, into the bloodstream a little bit, which is, so everything for chatbot GPT in terms of, oh, yeah, yeah, right. I forgot about this. Sorry. Go ahead. Turns, is either like, oh, fifth graders are now going to plagiarize everything or, oh, this is going to get so sophisticated that it takes over our lives completely, right? And I was just thinking the other day, like, couldn't you also just use chatbot GPT as a great thing to blame shit on? So, like, let's say that you sent someone a text to blame things on, right? You sent someone a text and you were inappropriate in some way. You shared too much information. You were a little mean, whatever it is. You're like, oh, fuck, I'm sorry. That chatbot has, like, it's, it's not adjusting at all, you know, to my thing. And, like, you just blame it for everything that gets written that you wrote. Um, but, you know, you just say, oh, I, I you know, did the uh, extension here and I added chatbot GPT into my texting. And we're not quite there yet, but we will be soon. Um, and just blame everything that you say wrong. And by the way, fucking Twitter, where people say stupid shit all day and get in trouble for it. That's like the literally underlying purpose of Twitter. Chatbot GPT becomes a, a great excuse. But it, it, how long could you use that excuse before people are like, well, I don't like Bradley anymore because he just uses chat box GPT to respond? If, if you did it six or seven times to the same person, then that would become an issue. But if it was a more widely, you know, you used it sparingly, but widely, um, I, I think it could at least for a period of time keep you out of trouble. Bradley, I think it's going to be a long time before chat box GPT catches up to the way your brain works. Um. I don't know if that's good for the world or bad for the world, but either way, it's a good way to close the podcast. See you next week, Bradley. There you go. Bye.